Let's turn in our Bibles to Acts chapter 7, and we're going to read just a few verses of an amazing sermon from Stephen, um, who is recognized as the first martyr of the church. We're not sure that he indeed was the first martyr, but he was the first martyr that we have record of in the book of Acts. Um, we are praying today for God to do a very special thing, uh, a work of the Holy Spirit. We want to begin with uh, the reading of the text, but we also want to let it be a time when we open our hearts to the Lord in a fresh way. We've been praying that there will be an uncovering today to each of us, not an exposing of in, in any public level or anything like that. But today is the day we've been asking God to show us the idols of our heart that we may not have seen before. And not only do we want to see things, but we want to ask the Holy Spirit. And I'm being very specific and upfront. I'm not trying to sneak in on you. Um, <clears throat> and I want hell to know this. We want to pray that the Holy Spirit will break our cycle of dependence on whatever it is we're holding to and to break our need for dependence on that thing. We believe that there's going to be a subtle shift in the supernatural realm today, and there's going to be a door of grace open. This is not a time of humiliation or a time of exposure. It's not going to be one of those moments um, like Moses had where he said, everybody that's on this side come over here, everybody on that side go over there, and the ground's going to open up and swallow you. It's not a moment like that, but it is a moment in the goodness of God where he shows us something about us that perhaps we've never seen. So let's begin by opening our hearts. We also want to pray not only for those that are sick and struggling today, um, we want to remember them, but we also want to remind you that yesterday was the National Day of Prayer for Adoptive Parents. And we want to take just a few seconds to, to join our hearts together for those adoptive parents and those in the process of adoption. Uh, Father, in the name of Jesus, we come to you as we prepare our hearts for this message today. We say, welcome, Holy Spirit. Welcome, Holy Spirit. Do in us what we cannot do ourselves. Let today be marked as not a good sermon necessarily, although I hope it'll be that. Not good worship necessarily, although we've already experienced that. But let it be a day when we are brought to a place of um, intense honesty before God. Uh, thank you, Lord, that our neighbors don't have to be a part of what you're doing in us, but help us to not lay aside this moment and this opportunity for the Holy Spirit to do a deep and profound work in us. So we as a congregation say, come Holy Spirit, come now. We also ask you, Father, to be with those that are sick. We know there are, there are people that are fighting for their lives because of sickness or injury. We know there are people that are recovering from surgery or facing surgery. Lord, there's so many needs on so many levels. And as a body, we know prayer's already been offered and will continue to be offered. But as a body, we want to stop for just a moment and say, Lord, be our healer. Be the gracious mover of circumstances and difficulties and bring down uh, the opposition of the enemy so that no weapon that is formed against us shall prosper. And Lord, finally, we pray for adoptive parents, both those that are adoptive parents, those that are in the process of adopting. Now, Lord, we pray for all of our parents always, and we thank you for every child, regardless of how they made their way into our homes, whether it was through the natural process or, or um, something like adoption or foster care. But Lord, we pray for the grace of God to be extended to those families, uh, uh, especially today that are in the process of adoption. Be their provider, be their wisdom, be their grace and their strength. And now, Father, as we come to the Word, we ask you to help us to see what we may not have seen before. And we'll give you thanks for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Our fathers, now this is the, the, the middle, well, toward the end of Stephen's sermon. Uh, well, I say it, sermon, it wasn't really a sermon. It was a defense in court. <clears throat> but it's one of the finest sermons in the book of Acts. <clears throat> 
Um, he has been accused of three things. And what we're going to find in just a moment that Stephen has uh, turned those accusations, those same three accusations, and he says, I'm not the one who is guilty of these charges. You are. And with a finger as long as Nathan the prophet, when he accused David of the twin sins of murder and adultery, Stephen is pointing back to the high priest. He's pointing back to the Sanhedrin. He's pointing to the the very uh, fabric of, na of the nation of Israel and saying, this is not guilt that I carry. This is guilt that you carry. And listen to his words. Our fathers were unwilling to be obedient to him, but repudiated him and in their hearts turned back to Egypt, saying to Aaron, make for us gods who will go before us, for this Moses who led us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what happened to him. At that time they made a calf and brought a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and delivered them up to serve the host of heaven as it is written in the book of the prophets. It was not to, and this is from the book of Amos, by the way, it was not to me that you offered victims and sacrifices 40 years in the wilderness, was it, O house of Israel? You also took along the tabernacle of Moloch and the star of the god Rompha, the images which you made to worship, so I will remove you beyond Babylon. And then he talked a little bit more about that. And when you skip down to verse 51, this is how he concluded his sermon. This will not give you longevity in a church ending your sermons this way. But I think he knew what was about to happen. And he said, you men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You are doing just as your fathers did. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You who received the law as ordained by angels and yet did not keep it. Loved ones, I, I find myself in not the common ground upon which I usually stand when I preach on Sundays I realize that there is probably an application of this message to only a, a minority of our members here at the church. I at no point have felt that this was a rebuke of Christian life, but I do feel that it's an invitation for a further purging and a step up for all of us to come closer. I think there's some implications from this sermon that are far-reaching beyond our congregation today. And it may be that in some of our lives it deals with a particular sin. It may be in others of us it shows us a principle of Scripture that many have violated and ignored. And it may be that God is bringing us as a congregation to a place of greater understanding. You are going to have to decide where this fits in your life today as I do my best to simply obey the Lord. God has been impressing upon my heart several things. In 2 Timothy 1.14, he says, Guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us the treasure which has been entrusted to you. He would say in the next chapter of that same book, he would speak of folks who were weighed down with sin. He said they would always be learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. And I think what we need to understand is that Paul is saying, as you conduct business in the church, Timothy, understand that there will always be those in the church that are ever learning, always going to the next revival, always going... The original Greek says the next website. That's a joke. It doesn't say that. But that's in our culture. Always trying to find a new twist. Always trying to find a new idea. And he said, understand that there are always going to be people in the church that are always learning, but never able to come to the fullness of the truth. Now that does not mean... <clears throat> 
that um, <coughs> that does not mean that these people necessarily, it may mean it in some situations, it doesn't mean they're necessarily unsaved, but God has laid out for us a beautiful inheritance. And I want you to know that the fact of the matter is when we don't follow the Lord on His terms, we may have a card that says we're a church member in good standing. We may go from place to place in our lives, high point to high point where God gives us a victory. But the question is, are you living for the Lord in such a way that you are receiving the inheritance that He has for you? That's, that's the question. That's what we've got to understand. Now, <clears throat> let me go ahead and tell you this about your outline. It is flawed today. You say, well, Pastor, every outline you give us is flawed in some way or another. No, I mean we, we got a formatting problem with the bulletin. And um, the first part is okay, but when we get to the second part, there are basically four things that I want you to understand under the part verdict. And I will highlight those four things because they're not numbered that way. Um, and, and, you know, our computers are so smart, they try to help us do things better. And sometimes they overrule what we're trying to do. Uh, sort of like 2001 A Space Odyssey, but that's another story we'll talk about later. So I'm going to help you as we walk through that last section there. When we look at this issue today, I, I want to give you a kind of, this is one of those sermons where the introduction may be as long as the sermon. But there are two issues that I need to speak to you about today. One is the issue of assurance and one is the issue of baggage. What I mean by assurance is Many Christians who love the Lord with all of their heart struggle with assurance. You've known people like that. They've done everything the scripture says. They've obeyed the teaching, but they're in this constant battle of, am I really saved? Are my sins really forgiven? Uh, is God really for me? And you might be surprised how many Christians struggle through their whole lives with this issue of assurance. I've known people, I've lived long enough now and I've pastored long enough now to see people live decades of never being sure that they're good enough, never being sure that their sins are really taken care of. And they die and go to heaven and what you look back on is so much of their life was wasted because they never grabbed hold of assurance. I want you to understand God doesn't intend you to live that way. But I also want you to understand there's another concept and it's the concept of baggage. Baggage. It's carrying something that God never intended us to carry. Sometimes the baggage is seen. Sometimes the baggage is unseen. And when we see the baggage, on top of that, sometimes the baggage is understood. Sometimes it's misunderstood. But baggage and, and um, this issue of assurance, it wrestles with us. And it comes around in at least one of two ways. The enemy wants to, or, or, or in, at, in at least a couple of ways, I should say, the enemy, number one, wants you to traffic in shame. He wants you to have a lack of confidence. Whatever your sins were, he wants you to carry the shame and the guilt of those sins all of your life. And you say, well, pastor, I do pretty good with it, but you may be like Elijah's widow. Remember, she was living on the blessing of God. Everything was great. Ever since Elijah showed up, they were living um, in the protective hand of God, living in the favor of God. And then her son died. And what was her immediate response when her son died? I knew this was what was really going on. I thought God was blessing me, but it's obvious, Elijah, he brought you here to remind me of my sin and my shame. Loved ones, whenever you have not settled the matter of assurance, there is always the tendency to think when things go wrong, instead of drawing close to the Lord in the battle, you say, well, I knew it was just a matter. Sooner or later, it was going to catch up with me. The enemy's weapons in our lives are intimidation and accusation. Now, it can, it can cause you shame. It can also cause blockages. Now, um, when you have a lack of assurance, it causes shame that can always get you off track. But if you have something that you're holding to, it can actually cause a blockage. It, when you're holding to a sin that you ought not to be holding to, I mean, and which we should not be holding to any of them, but it's the scripture that says, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. 
That, that verse is not saying if I have sin in my heart, God won't hear me. That's not true. If we, if we couldn't be heard by God because of sin in our heart, we could never repent. But when it says, if I regard iniquity in my heart, what that word means to regard iniquity is to give it a place of honor, to give it a place of safety, to give it a place of protection. You might have many, many possessions in your home, but the ones that are most precious to you, if you have a safe, you put them in the safe because you want to say, no matter what comes, I want to guard it and I want to protect it. Do you know, loved ones, that a child of God can do that with our sin? We can give it a place of safety and protection. We can pray like we did today. Come, Holy Spirit. Move in our church. Bring revival. Let your presence come. Show up in my life. And all the time, we have preserved a hiding place in our lives for things that we know are not pleasing to the Lord. And we would never say the words with our mouth, but we say it loudly with our heart every day of our lives. Come, Lord, and do what you will in me. Accept this sacred shelf. And that causes blockages. Now, you say, well, what if what's in my life? I'm not sure what it is. Well, that causes uncertainty. And the result of that, are you all staying with me here? This, don't look for this in your notes. It's not there, okay? It causes uncertainty, and we never seem to be able to grasp the difference between conviction and condemnation. Now, I've talked about this before. Let me just say it quickly. Condemnation is always of the enemy. That's why Romans 8 says there is now, therefore, no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Condemnation is from the devil, and it's vague. It's a generality. Condemnation says, Roy, you just sorry. You, ju- you just have messed up all of your life. And, and if Roy says, what have I done, Lord? And the voice of condemnation says, there's so many I can't even mention them. Condemnation is vague. Condemnation is harsh. And condemnation says there is no hope. So whenever the sin in your life is being dealt with in vague, general ways with harshness and no sense of hope, no sense of redemption, you can mark it down. That's from hell. That's not the voice of heaven. But conviction is loving. Now, it may be firm at times. It may be very confrontive at times, maybe in your face at times, but it's always loving and it's always very specific. When, when Roy says, Lord, I just feel like there's something not, not right in my life. What, what have I done? The Lord will say, Roy, let's go back to 9 o'clock this morning. You remember how you acted to so-and-so? That grieved my heart and it hurt them. That, that has hindered the work of the Holy Spirit in you all day. Roy, go back and make it right. And when you go back and make it right, everything will be fine. There's specificity and there's hope. That's the difference between conviction and condemnation. Now... Why do these battles come? Sometimes we have these battles because of wickedness. We just simply have not surrendered part of our life to the Lord Jesus Christ. Sometimes we have these battles because of weakness. This just, we just have a tendency that in this particular area we're weak. You know, I, I have trouble with lust and everything in my life is, is, is a battle in regard to lust, you might say. Well, that's a weakness, and you need to be sure that you don't put yourself in situations where that weakness gains the upper hand. Or it could be weariness. Sometimes you're just tired. Sometimes you're just not on your game. I think that was the cause of David's fall with Bathsheba. You say, well, it was clearly lust. He looked at her, but he should have been at war. It was the time of the year when kings went to war. And David was not an old man. He was at best in his early 40s. He, he was way too young to start feeling the weariness of old age. But maybe he had just been weary of the battles. Maybe he had just been weary of fighting the good fight of faith. For whatever reason, I think it was weariness. David stayed behind and he found himself un, or, or ill-equipped to face a temptation that was before him, I don't think it was because of the wickedness in his heart. I don't even know that it was the weakness in his heart. But David had let himself get weary. And loved ones, sometimes when we get weary, that's the point where it's easiest for us to fall. (coughs) 
Now, let me, let me just go a, just a step deeper, and then I want to get into this text a little bit more today. We've got to be on guard. Sometimes we're just dissatisfied. Like Gehazi, we don't feel like we're being paid enough. We don't believe we're being treated well because of our service for the Lord. Sometimes we're like Demas. We have loved the things of this present world. And sometimes we can get distracted because we're dissatisfied. Sometimes we can get distracted because we're just disobedient. Disobedience always opens the door for further disobedience. Lovers, please don't be offended by what I'm about to say. Sometimes we fight these battles because we're dysfunctional. We have not dealt with the baggage of our past. We've not dealt with the, the horrors of our life, maybe the way we were raised or an experience we went through. There are so many reasons that we can become dysfunctional, and that's why we have to let the Lord heal us, or we'll go through life making the same mistakes, committing the same sins, saying in the same cycle over and over and over again, and it's because we have not settled the dysfunction in our own lives. That's why this is just one of a million examples I could use, so please, if this fits you, don't, please don't be offended. But that's why a woman who grew up in the home of an of a alcoholic father, you would think that everything in her mind would tell her, don't marry an alcoholic man. You see what life with an alcoholic man is like. Don't do that. But what you find so often, not always, now please don't come up to me afterwards and say, my daddy was an alcoholic and I didn't marry an alcoholic. I know that. But what I'm saying is I have found through the years, as often as not, if they don't marry an alcoholic, they will marry someone who is just as irresponsible as the alcoholic. And I didn't get a single amen, so either, either that means I really missed it or you really missed it. So we'll just, you know, I don't know which, but we'll leave that for the eternities to decide. But what, I, what I'm trying to tell you is that when someone is raised in a dysfunctional home, they either learn the dysfunction and, and go the other way, or that dysfunction will continue to manifest itself in them and their children and their children's children. We've got to deal with the dysfunction. Sometimes we're disillusioned. I tell you, one of the biggest battles I've had through the years is help people grow in the Lord who got hurt in church and they've come to our church and said, well, I'm going to serve the Lord and I'm going to come to church, but I'm not going to serve again. I'm not going to allow myself to get hurt ever again. That it's because you're disillusioned and you don't allow the healing work of God to take place in your life at all because you're always serving with a chip on your shoulder and you can't serve with a chip on your shoulder. My pastor used to say, whenever someone tries to serve the Lord, every time they bow the knee, the chip that's on their shoulder falls off. He says, you can't do it. You've either got to retain a posture where the chip never falls, or you've got to deal with your disillusionment. And loved ones, I want to say one more thing. Sometimes we fight battles not because we're dissatisfied or disobedient or dysfunctional or disillusioned, but sometimes we're actually delusional. Sometimes even as a child of God, we have not allowed the truth of the Holy Spirit to work in our lives. And Paul described these people in 2 Thessalonians 2. He said they would be ones who reject the truth of God. And because they reject the truth, God turns them over to a reprobate mind to believe a lie and to be damned. Loved ones, I want to say this. I know I'm painting with broad strokes of the brush today, but one of the most dangerous things anyone can ever do is, is attend regularly a Spirit-filled, Holy Ghost-anointed church and decide I will pick and choose which truth to believe. That's a dangerous way to live because it can actually lead to you becoming delusional. And you know what we do? Say, Pastor, I'm going to pray you have a better week. <laughs> what we actually do is we move forward on the journey thinking we'll deal with it, whatever it is, whatever it is, we'll deal with it later. Or we feel that I'm going to serve the Lord, <coughs> but I've got to hold on to this just in case. It happens on every area of our lives. 
It may have to do with business and money. We serve the Lord, we'll give, we'll do whatever we know to do, but we hold to our finances. We don't live in integrity. We don't, <coughs> we don't live a life of honesty because we never know when we're going to need this extra. And so we go forward on the journey saying, I'll, I'll give everything to the Lord except what I put on my sacred shelf. You say, I'm not sure I understand. This is what Stephen accused these leaders of. He said, you went into the wilderness. You said we're going to go to a new land. You said we're going to inherit the blessing of God. You said we're going to be called the people of God. But he said, you carried your idols with you. You carried Romfa with you. You carried the, 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 the uh, idol of Moloch with you. And your attitude, he says, was you never know what you're going to need and when you're going to need it. So it comes to light in the way we deal with our personal possessions. All to Jesus I surrender. And then when he starts demanding stuff, we change songs and we say, Jesus paid it all. <laughs> we'll do it with relationships. We'll do it with relationships. We'll go to work on Monday morning, flirt with the secretary, make innuendos to our boss. We will, we will dress seductively or act seductively and we won't cross the line of adultery, but we say, I never know when I might need this relationship in my life. So we say, come and say, Lord, cleanse me. Lord, don't let these sins be named once among us. And it's easy for us to condemn the sins of others, but we have one that we put up on the sacred shelf. We do it with our politics. We do it with our politics all the time. We say, I know this is wrong, but I'm going to hold to this view because it's my political posture. I know this is wrong, but loved ones, I've said this for years and I want to say it loudly. The problems we have in America by and large would not exist if Christians simply voted as Christians. If we carried our Christian standards into the ballot box. If we, if we said we're going to stand for what's right instead of saying, well, I know this is wrong, but in order to be a good Democrat or a good Republican or a good Demolican or whatever it is you claim to be, I will hold to this. What does God think about it? It's as offensive as the children of Israel carrying the God Moloch into the wilderness. But we have been, we've been blinded to think that it's okay as long as it's up here on this shelf. I don't have to deal with it. I'll let somebody else deal with it. Or the day will come when I'll deal with it. It's what the Confederacy did during the Civil War. There was no more, re more religious part of the country than the old Confederacy. There was no collection of Christian leaders more pronounced than there was in the Confederacy. But you know what they did? They were confronted with the issue of slavery. And they said, this is the way we live. If we deal with slavery, it will bankrupt our culture. If we deal with slavery. So what did they do? They took the scriptures of the Old and New Testament, twisted them as well as they could and said, we're doing the blacks a favor. They would never know Jesus if we had not brought them into bondage. And it goes on and on and on. You say, how could Christians do that? Because when you take your idols and you put them up on a sacred shelf, they could not be justified in their sin in the name of politics. And in America, we cannot be justified in our sin because of our politics. You say, oh, I would never do that. Let me tell you something, loved ones. When, when, when sanctification threatens your security, that's tough. Ronald Reagan came out against uh, abortion back in the early 80s. And that was not a particularly popular view among Christians. In fact, hats off to our Catholic neighbors across the street. Because for the first uh, 
nearly 20 years of abortion in the United States, 15 years anyway, Protestants just looked the other way. It was the Catholics who said that abortion is a sin. And it took the rest of us 15 years to catch on to the murder of children. And Ronald Reagan said this in a cabinet meeting. He said, we must take a stand against abortion. And one of his chief advisors said, that's not the way Americans feel. The majority of people don't think there's anything wrong with abortion. And Ronald Reagan, and this is what he said, Mr. President, you cannot possibly be reelected in 1984 if you hold to this view. And Ronald Reagan said this, he says, you're telling me that the majority of Americans think abortion is okay? And he said, yes. He said, then our new priority is to help America understand this is not okay. He says, it will cost you re-election. And, re and Ronald Reagan said, there are some things more important than being re-elected. Now, since that time, abortion seems to be important to neither party. There was a, uh, I, I wrote the chairman of the Republican Party a few years ago and I said, I'm concerned that there seems to be, uh, th that abortion seems to have been forgotten in your party platform for the most part. And he wrote me back and said this, I don't know, it was just a form letter, but he says, there are agendas more important than dealing with abortion. And he said, one day we'll be able to deal with abortion, but we're not going to pay attention to it now because it's not a battle that can be won. You know what that man did? He put it up on his sacred shelf. And you say, Pastor, you're, you're, you're criticizing Democrats and supporting Republicans. No, I'm saying there's not a group in America except the remnant of the church that's taking abortion seriously. But you know what I'm trying to say to you is this. We must not fall into the trap of Israel by saying, we'll deal with it later. I'll walk in sin now and deal with it later. It's like saying to your wife, I know I shouldn't have this relationship, but I don't want to break her heart. I'll deal with her later. Well, probably already ruined today. Let's go ahead. Going back to your outline, Stephen's sermon, and I, I don't have time to deal with, with this in, in detail. But we see the charges against Stephen. If we had time to talk about it today, and I'm just giving you this for background. Uh, the charges against Stephen were as follows. He was charged with blasphemy against God. Then he gives his response. I gave you the verses. He was charged with blasphemy against the temple. Here was his response. And then blasphemy against the law. And he gave his response. But what he does is he turns around and says, these three sins are your sins. Number one, blasphemy against God. Idols were carried into the wilderness at the very beginning of their journey. When God said, we're going to move out, and, and God said, I pulled you out of the iron furnace of Egypt. As they walked out of the iron furnace of Egypt, they walked out with idols in their possession. There was blasphemy against God's presence. They said, you're blaspheming the temple. Stephen said, the temple is nothing more than God's presence. But he says, you have resisted the presence of God at every turn of your history. Was there ever a prophet that you did not persecute? And then he said, there's blasphemy against the law. The law of God was desecrated by their treatment of it. So what was their response? And loved ones, I'm not talking about you and me. I'm talking about the church and the message. Their response was to kill the messenger and quench the spirit. Now, what was the verdict? And this is where we want to wrap it up. Now, I'm going to, there's four topics. I'm going to tell you what they are because the, the format got boogered in the computer here. here here's number one. It, it's letter A, I think, on your outline. Here's the four things I want you to understand. The tendency of every generation is to carry contraband on the journey. What God is after in our church and the remnant church in America, he's saying, can you come to a place where in spite of your culture, in spite of your background, in spite of what's your, the, the nature of the battle that you're fighting, are you coming to a place where you can really walk with me and let go of everything that I don't want you to hold to. Rachel did it. She went off with the love of her life for a new journey, a new beginning, but she carried her household gods. 
Moses had to deal with it. In Leviticus 17, 7, he spoke to the children of Israel in the wilderness. He says, I want you to stop sacrificing to goat demons and playing the harlot. He said in Deuteronomy 4.19, he says, Understand that the Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace from Egypt to be a people for his own possession. He says, therefore, don't let idolatry, don't let the worship of the stars and the moon and the sun, don't let those things surface in your life. Joshua found it necessary <coughs> to command Israel to put away their false gods. You say, well, yeah, that was that bunch in the wilderness that was dying off. No. This was the generation that went in the land and possessed the land. They were living, beginning to see the fulfillment of God. And Joshua said, you see all that God has done for you. Now put away those idols. And that generation that began to inherit the promise had not kept the most basic covenant agreement of circumcision and they failed chronically to observe the Passover with regularity. How, how like the people of God it is for all of us as we walk in our journey with God to find that there's some contraband we simply will not let go of. <coughs> Here's number two. Okay, I think it's, uh, I can't see, letter D, this is number two. This thing we call it always turns into something bigger than we ever intended. Okay, it's our tendency to carry it along. We, th we say it's a small thing. It's a small thing. Uh, you know, have you ever traveled internationally and you've got a weight limit on your baggage and you, you find that you're three pounds over, and they say, we're going to have to charge you $150 unless you can get rid of three pounds. And you open up your suitcase, and you'd be amazed how, how many things are suddenly unnecessary. <laughs> but we thought we had to have it. I can't go to Europe without this. I can't go to Israel without this. It turns into something bigger than we ever intended. Now the rabbis, when they wrote about this incident, this is what the rabbis said. We know that a mixed multitude came out of Egypt. It was the mixed multitude that carried these idols. The people of God would never carry idols into the wilderness. But can I tell you something? Amos and Stephen laid the blame at the feet of God's own people. There are some things we can't blame on a mixed multitude. There are some things we can't blame on a carnal church member. There are some things we can't blame on other churches. The question is this. It's the blame is put at our feet. So what have we done? We said it's such a little thing. And God says those little things always get bigger than you think. Here's the third thing. Uh, Justin, help me. It's idols can remain. What letter is that? Letter E should be the third thing. Here it is. Idols can remain hidden even while we grow into spiritual greatness. Do you realize that when poor little Stephen, a single individual, was standing there making his defense, he was facing the second largest bank on earth, the temple bank? Do you realize that he was facing... Uh, as far as we can tell, one of, if not the most organized and layered religious system on the face of the globe, the formal worship of Israel. He was ministering in a temple that was beyond comparison. You consider the splendor of the temple, its liturgy, its treasury. This thing had grown into greatness and they were standing in all of their greatness and power against one apparently defenseless man. And before you know it, the Holy Spirit has turned the odds. And that one man is saying, you are the one. With all of your splendor, with all of your money, with all of your glory, with all of your liturgy. You don't even know that the glory of God left 600 years ago. During the day of Ezekiel. And here's number four. <coughs> I should quit yelling, I'm sorry. All that is needed, what letter, Justin? 
F, all that is needed to bring it into the open is a manifestation of God's glory. See, we're praying for God's glory to come. And sometimes it's actually the mercy of God that God's glory doesn't come because when the glory comes, what's hidden is usually exposed. You see, again, I know you and I know you're not like this. And I don't know who I'm saying this for. Maybe a handful of people. Maybe this will be heard somewhere else. But I want to tell you, for a whole generation, we flocked to whoever had the biggest show. We flocked to whoever had the biggest gimmick. We've wanted signs and wonders. We've wanted, we've wanted the best of everything because we want to be entertained and we want to be amazed. But when God really begins to show up, loved ones, what's going to happen is all that we have hidden is suddenly going to be exposed. It's going to be exposed. And I want to ask you this, do we really want him to come? This is what I am asking the remnant church today. I, 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 I don't know how or on what format, but I think this message is beyond our church. I want to ask the remnant church, do you really want him to come? Let me put it to you another way, because this is, and loved ones, believe me, I have racked my soul over these issues. And it's not just, it's, it's, a, it's becoming a way of life with me. Are you willing to say amen to everything that God says? Because let me tell you, one of the situations that you've got to face in Deuteronomy 27, 15, the children of Israel are between the two mountains, the mountain of cursing, the mountain of blessing. We've talked about that. And God was requiring Israel to do an amazing thing, something they never lived up to. The question is, will the church live up to it? <laughs> From the Mount of Blessing, God said, this is what I will do if you will follow me. And the people were, were to respond, amen, 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 amen. Amen. But interspersed between the pronunciations of blessing were pronunciations of curses. And God said, now this is what I'll do if you won't walk in integrity with me. This is what I will do if you carry idols uh, into the wilderness. This is what I'll do if you hold to the old life. This is what I'll do if you don't get Egypt out of your heart. And he said, you'll be cursed. You'll find this. You'll find that. You'll find the other. And you know, the, you know, the amazingly cruel thing to the mind of my flesh is this. God required them to listen to those curses and say, amen. 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 Loved ones, I want to tell you that the church today has been focused on the blessings and we've been told to say amen. Get your confession in line. Say amen. Let your confession be positive. Say amen. Let your thoughts be on top of things. Say amen. But the church has not been taught to listen to the other voice. The church has not been taught to listen to the conditions of the covenant. And I want to tell you, as, as pure as my heart knows to be today, with as much intensity as I know how to muster, the church is being called and the question is being asked, can you say amen to the curses? That's a heady, that's a heady thought. That's a life-changing thought. Because to say amen to the curses means that you walk away from what you have accommodated in your relationships, what you've accommodated in your politics, what you've accommodated in your business, what you've accommodated in your dealings with people. And there's nothing else that's allowed to be in the shadow. You've got to go to that shelf and take this stuff down. Can you say amen? You say, well, pastor, you just don't understand. Listen, I've used that line too many times. I've used it up. You don't have any uses of it left. I can't tell you how many times I've told, to the, told the Lord, Lord, you just don't understand. Well, I know you understand, but, well, I, I'm, I don't think you've thought this through. What, well, I, I know you've thought this through, but this is just not wisdom. This, this is imbalance. This would be, to do this would be getting out of balance. And finally, after a half dozen excuses, I finally come to the place where I say, Lord, this is an idol. This is an idol. That relationship is an idol. That, that 
financial attitude is an idol. The things I'm holding to just in case are an idol. And Lord, I'm coming to the place, and oh guys, it is so painfully slow. I'm coming to the place where I'm finding out that my only security is the center of God's will. I'm coming to the place where I'm finding that my only hope for the future is to be obedient to Him in all things. You say, Pastor, that's just, that's just not balanced. Please understand, we're in an imbalanced world and we're trying to take lessons of balance from someone who's imbalanced. I, I, I remember one time talking about wanting to do an activity and somebody poked me in the belly and said, well, you're going to have to get rid of this first. Now, the interesting thing is the person that poked me in the belly probably outweighed me by 75 pounds. And I thought, well, I probably need advice, but it's not going to happen from you. It's not going to happen from you. And guys, this, in our politics, in our relationships, in our theology, in our seminaries, in our church denominations, we're trying to not be offensive and we're trying to hedge our bets. We're trying to keep all the safeguards in place we can. But some of them are called Moloch. Some of them are called Rimpha. And you know how God describes, you say, well, I, Pastor, I, I believe I'm going to heaven. You are going to heaven. Do you realize that God, the, the, the most provisioned and cared for uh, generation imaginable, they had food from heaven, they had water from the rock, their enemies when they were outgunned and outmanned were defeated. I mean, they, they probably walked through the wilderness singing, Abraham's blessings are mine. I've got manna, I've got all the water I can drink, i got the pillar of fire to keep me warm at night, i got the pillar of cloud to, to shield me in the day. Oh, I just love being a member of this church. And you know what God was doing? He said, I'm waiting for you to die. I'll take care of you till you die. But I'm looking for a generation that will walk in holiness. I want to tell you the greatest fear of my life is to not receive my inheritance. And I'm not talking about heaven. I'm talking about how, how remorseful we will be to get to the other side and realize when the, in, the, in the beauty and completeness and full revelation of heaven to realize that we never even came close to what God intended us to live in here. That has nothing to do with heaven. Do not misunderstand me. You can have idols in your life and go to heaven, but you can't have idols in your life and walk in his inheritance. It's that mindset that makes us say, well, I'll marry so-and-so. It's not a good move, but nobody else has asked. It's what causes us to have adultery in our heart and, 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 and entertain relationships. We may never actually cross the line, but it's there. All we need is the wrong moment, the wrong set of circumstances because the idol's been waiting in reserve. And how does the book of Acts describe that generation? God put up with them. God put up with them. Loved ones, we got to end because we're out of time, but I just... I am not perfect by any stretch of the imagination. But I do want you to understand my purpose, my goal is to please him. More than anything else, I want to hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. And heaven for the least will be glory beyond compare. But I want you to understand some of us are going to go to heaven and our greatest remorse when we get there. I think, you remember he said he'll wipe away all tears. And I wondered if some of the tears he'll have to wipe away might not be caused by our remorse of seeing what was available and we didn't live for it. I want to ask you a very difficult question. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands or even a response to the altar. I want to just ask you a question that I have to ask myself regularly and, and it's a battle. Are you willing to say amen 
to everything God said? See, this is what he said in Deuteronomy 27 that they were required to say amen to. Cursed is anyone who makes an idol a thing detestable to the Lord and sets it up in secret. Can I say amen to that? You say, what, what happens if I do say amen? You got to go to that sacred shelf. You got to take it down. You got, you got to give it. Well, pastor, but what if I need that? Can I ask you this? Is there any conceivable moment when God will not be enough? Is there any conceivable moment when his covenant is not adequate? Do you know what Paul said to Timothy? He says, even if we are unfaithful, God will remain faithful. For he cannot deny himself. Now that does not mean, oh, if, you, if you're in sin, don't worry about it. God will cover it. That's not what it means. It means God is so committed. It, God is so committed to us that even in our moments of unfaithfulness, God says, I will not break my covenant with you. So the question we have to make is not a matter of heaven and hell. It's a matter of inheritance. It's a matter of this life here. It's a matter of hosting the presence of God. It's a matter of not being set aside <laughs> for whatever God wants to do because of your compromise. Let me tell you something, and, and I, I will quit. Justin, if I don't quit, come wrestle me to the ground. There's, a, there's something that haunted me for a long time from high school. Um, I, I played varsity basketball. I was not good enough to be a starter, but I was a good second stringer. I was good enough to be a second stringer. But that's all I ever was, was a second stringer. My, my brother, I always wanted to be like him. He had an invitation to play in the pros, you know, to try out for the pros. But I never came close to him. And, and I was a good second stringer. And I remember a game that was going to determine if we went forward in the playoffs or not. Um, our, one of our guards fouled out, and I will never forget Coach getting up, fussing with the referee, and then realizing he's got to get somebody in to, to cover the last 30 seconds of the game. And there were two of us reserve guards on the bench. Our best guard, all-star guard, is now out of the game, fouled out. And coach looked at me and took two or three steps toward me. I'll never forget this as long as I live. His eyes met my eyes and we locked. And it was probably less than five seconds, but it seemed like an eternity. And I could read everything in his mind. His mind was saying, Steve, I like you. But you can't handle this. And he looked to the other guard and sent him in. I want to tell you, that did a number on me, not because I think I was mistreated. You know why it did a number on me? Because it was accurate. It was accurate. I was not good enough to handle that pressure-packed play. But my buddy was. Guys, I'm not trying to be emotionally manipulative. But I'm telling you, I want to live a life where whatever God says, I want him to be able to look me in the eye and say, do this. Do you realize the integrity of Ananias? Justin, look at me menacingly. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm seeing it. I'm, it's, it's coming. Now, you say, what, what kind of man was Ananias that God would send him that God would send him to a man that would be arguably the greatest apostle of them all. It was his responsibility to lay hands on him and pray that he'd be filled with the Spirit and his eyes healed. Why in the world would God choose Ananias? He's mentioned once and never again in the Bible. This wasn't the Ananias that got killed. This is an, another Ananias. Why? Well, there's an there's a introductory sentence before Ananias has his conversation with the Lord. And the scripture says, Ananias was a good man, devout in all things concerning the law. Do you know why Ananias was looked at that day? Because he had settled the issue of idols. 
He was diligent. And there's no reason to think he would ever be in the Acts narrative. But it's as though he lived his life to such a degree that in one moment, God looked at him and said, this is your moment, baby. This is it, Ananias. There's a chosen vessel and the, and the, the, the direction of Christianity hinges on him. Go! And he walks into that room for his one and only moment in the sun as far as scripture goes. And he looks at him and he has the grace to call him Brother Saul. Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you has sent me to lay hands on you and to pray for you and for you to receive your sight. And he went and laid hands on him. And God did what he wanted to do because he had a vessel that didn't have any idols to bag it down to bog it down, to slow it down. And then he turns and walks off the scene. Loved ones, ours is not going to be a day when Christian life will go down in the name of history books. Ours is not an attempt to find out how much glory we can get for ourselves. But can we live with such integrity? Can we live free of idols so that in this hour that we are facing, God finds a little church in South Carolina that will not let relationships, will not let politics, will not let money, will not let insecurity, will not let pleasure, will not let preference keep us from being what God wants us to be. Loved ones, can you say amen to whatever God's saying in your heart? That's between you and him. I'm not going to make an altar call and say, everybody that's got raunchiness in your life, come forward. you got to decide this. This is between you and him. You say, well, you're preaching to the church. Well, a church is made up, a church's decisions are made up of individual decisions. I've got to stop. Justin's getting mad. I'm teasing. Father, would you please come? Lord, I, I am so burdened over this. I don't know what else to do. I, I, my call is over, but now can the Spirit of God begin to speak to every one of your people? And would you begin to speak to us about blessings and cursings? Would you begin to speak to us about compromise? Would you begin to speak to us about the games we have played and the and the, and the things we have held to for whatever justifiable reasons we thought we had. We want nothing to do with Moloch. We want nothing to do with the gods of the land. We want nothing to do with Remphah. We want nothing to do with anything. We want to say, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Father, may we be like an Ananias who was devout in all things so that when you spoke, he heard. When you needed somebody to go in for that last play, he was ready. Father, I don't ever want you to have to look past us in Jesus' name. Would you stand with me, loved ones? I, it's, it's really the rest of this is up to you. Those of you that may be listening online or you may be listening by way of CD or DVD, I, or, I, 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 don't, I, don't know, I don't know where this message will go. But I do believe this, in this hour, God is calling his church to lay aside what we've carried into the journey with us. We may call them household gods, we may say my parents held to this God and my grandparents held to this God and my great-grandparents, my great-great-grandparents, but they're still idols. We, we may say, my, but my wife doesn't treat me like she ought to treat me. And I'm just, it's just innocent, this, this flirting that I'm doing. I, no real harm comes from it, but still an idol. The list goes on and on. What have you put on the sacred shelf? You say, nothing that I know of. Well, praise God, we rejoice with you. 
Father, work in the hearts of your children in Jesus' name. Look, loved ones, this is what I want to do. We've gone over, and I, 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 I just don't know how to end this except to just say this. The altar is open for you to take care of business. It's open for everyone, for some who will come and just want to worship, or others who you have something really being tagged in your heart by the Holy Spirit right now. It's open for you. There may be some here that you say, Pastor, there's nothing that I know of, but I want the Holy Spirit to search me. Search my heart, oh God. Try me. See if there be any wicked way in me. But today, we're going to say amen to everything God says in our lives. The altars are open. Ministry teams will come and pray for you. If you're here by chance and don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, I invite you to come into the altar area and pray. And when a ministry team member comes and lays hands on you, just, they just may put their hand on your shoulder. Just take them by the hand and say, I want to know Jesus. And they'll help you get grounded in your decision for Christ today. The altars are open. Would you just come as the ministry team begins to lead us in worship and just let the Holy Spirit do what he will do in your lives today.